The music you're listening to right now is by Vangelis. The show you're listening to right now is Bench Talk, The Week in Science. This music is being played in honor of the 21 shooting victims at Robb Elementary School. Nineteen elementary students and two teachers senselessly murdered in Uvalde, Texas on May 24, 2022. Today's entire episode of Bench Talk is dedicated to Vangelis, who died of heart failure on May 17, 2022, at the age of 79. Now, Vangelis's musical career spanned over 50 years, being one of the primary developers of the electronic music movement. Vangelis was known for his one-man quasi-classical orchestrations and wrote numerous musical scores for movies like Chariots of Fire, Blade Runner, Missing, and The Bounty. And for science fans out there, I can tell you that Vangelis also composed a good part of the soundtrack for the historic PBS series on TV called Cosmos, which featured the iconic Carl Sagan. Vangelis was in the 1980 Cosmos, and the 1986 series, too. Even the NASA space program commissioned a few musical pieces from Vangelis, and you are listening to one of them right now. It's a public domain composition. It goes along with NASA's footage from last year's Juno spacecraft as it passed by the planet Jupiter and one of Jupiter's moons, Ganymede. It's really amazing photography. As Juno passes over Jupiter's surface, you can even see tiny explosions. Apparently, these explosions are called transient luminous events and are thought to be the result of lightning events in the upper atmosphere of Jupiter. You really need to see these transient luminous events. And so we'll post a link to the video on our SoundCloud page and our Facebook page. How can you find these pages? Well, you're listening to Bench Talk the Week in Science, courtesy of Forward Radio 106.5 FM in Louisville, Kentucky. So to find us, just do an internet search for Bench Talk the Week in Science. Same thing in Facebook. It's Bench Talk the Week in Science. I'm Dave Robinson, and I can tell you that we have an interesting show today. I'm going to start with a story about a very recent paper concerning trends in gun violence against children. Then we'll hear a little about what NASA is up to this month, again, in honor of Vangelis. And we'll end with J. Scott Miller telling us about what we can see in the night sky during the month of June. 
you don't need spacecraft to see Jupiter in the night sky right now. You can use your naked eye. Not only can you see Jupiter, but you can see Mercury, Venus, Saturn, and Mars. I start when it comes to science news. Of course, all of us are just torn up about the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas that happened recently. 19 elementary students killed, plus two teachers? America seems to be a really dangerous place for children these days, but is that true? What is the trend concerning guns and children? Is there any data about how many children in the United States are victims of guns? Well, a paper was just published in the journal Pediatrics about this. It was published in March of 2022. And they looked at the trends in childhood mortality due to guns between the year 2001 to 2019. And basically, it's bad news. I can tell you that the mortality rate among children due to guns has risen 14% during that 19-year period. But that figure is deceiving. The trend is even worse than just a 14% rise because childhood death due to firearms was actually going downwards from 2001 until 2013, the first 13 years of the century. But it was from 2013 until 2019 that the overall trend started heading upwards, upwards by about one third. So death rates due to firearms among children up to 19 years of age has basically gone from three per 100,000 children per year to four. It's gone from three to four. That's about a one third increase in only six years absolutely shocking. If you don't count deaths among newborns and congenital abnormalities, guns became the leading cause of death among our youth in 2019. This is really in contrast to the steady decline in childhood deaths due to motor vehicle accidents. Highway fatalities among youth has dropped from 9 per 100,000 to 4 per 100,000 during that same period, 2001 to 2019. That's a 50% decline. So in 2019, the last year that this paper had data to examine, a child had a greater chance of dying from being shot than from dying in a car accident. So childhood death due to guns really started going up in 2013 mostly due to an increase in the number of suicides and the number of homicides. The rate of accidental shootings is really quite low, and it remained flat during this time period. Now, youth shootings are not equivalent among the different races and ethnic groups that these researchers looked at. Asian and Pacific Islanders have experienced the lowest rates of gun deaths, White children have the next lowest rates, with the Hispanic populations being just a little above that. But it's interesting, death rates among Hispanic youth 
actually dropped during this 19-year period, whereas gun deaths among white children slightly increased. So from 2012 until now, gun deaths among white children have been slightly higher on a per capita basis than among the Hispanic population of children. But gun shootings of Native American children is now twice as high as it's in white and Hispanic populations. And astoundingly, firearm mortality in black youth is twice that of Native American youth. So to summarize, let's look at the data for just 2019, which is the most recent year that this paper covered. And let's look at the number of deaths due to firearms per 100,000 children between the ages of 0 and 19 years of age. For Asian and Pacific Islanders, that number is just below 2, 2 per 100,000. For whites and Hispanics, it's about 3. For Native Americans, it's more than 6. But for black youth, it's 12. So gun deaths range from less than 2 all the way up to 12 children per 100,000. That's a six-fold discrepancy between the races. Now, the vast majority of the gun deaths among black children has been homicide rather than suicide, but it's the reverse for white and Asian kids. More of the fatalities in white and Asian Pacific Island youth has been due to suicide rather than homicide. Well, that paper concerned up to 2019. What's happened since 2019? Well, I found a paper that was just published last week in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed that childhood death rates due to guns went up even more in 2020. The overall rate went up approximately another 25% in just that one year, 2020. Now, maybe the pandemic is part of the problem. A paper in Annals of Internal Medicine just reported that in the year 2021 alone, 7.5 million adults became first-time gun owners. That's almost 3% of the population. And because these adults have children, too, that's another 5 million children living in homes with guns now that did not in the year 2020. So even though the United States has done a pretty good job of reducing childhood mortality on the highways, this is still a pretty dangerous place for children. Oh, by the way, I should mention that I think you'll be seeing more and more research like the ones I've mentioned today, because in 2019, Congress reinterpreted the infamous Dickey Amendment. The Dickey Amendment was passed in 1996 and stipulated that no federal research funds could be used to, quote, advocate or promote gun control, unquote. Well, that's one thing, but... For 23 years, the Dickey Amendment was misinterpreted to mean that there could not be any scientific research on firearms or gun violence. I don't really know how this happened, but I do know the National Rifle Association was heavily lobbying for this amendment. And the final result was that the amount of federal funding provided to the Centers for Disease Control for research on guns and gun violence it was completely eliminated. 
there was no federally funded research on gun violence for more than 23 years. This finally changed in 2019, however, when Congress finally restored funding on gun research to the tune of $25 million. That's really just a pittance. $25 million is only 0.06% of federal funding for all medical research in the United States every year. But at least it's a start. The only guideline is that the money can only be used to study gun violence. Researchers cannot advocate for gun control, that is, if they receive federal dollars. So I guess when it comes to gun control advocacy, it's up to the general public to do that. And for a change of pace, let's see what's been going on at NASA in the last few weeks. A few of the stories to tell you about this week at NASA. On May 19th, Boeing's CST-100 Starliner spacecraft launched from Cape Canaveral Space Force Station in Florida on Orbital Flight Test 2, or OFT-2. The mission is the Starliner's second uncrewed flight to the station for our commercial crew program. Approaching the International Space Station. On May 20th, Boeing's uncrewed CST-100 Starliner spacecraft arrived at the International Space Station. Soft capture confirmed. Boeing Starliner spacecraft completes its historic first docking to the International Space Station, opening a new avenue of access for crews to the orbiting laboratory. The next day, another first for Starliner, thanks to the efforts of NASA astronauts Chell Lindgren and Bob Hines. All right. And it looks like the hatch is open to the Starliner. Bob Hines is the first astronaut to enter Starliner in orbit. The Starliner spent several days at the station, during which time teams conducted a series of planned tests, and the station crew transferred several hundred pounds of cargo and supplies. Starliner undocked from the station on May 25th and returned to Earth later the same day, making a landing at White Sands Space Harbor in New Mexico. The OFT-2 mission was designed to test the end-to-end -end capabilities of the Starliner system to safely transport astronauts to and from the space station. Gregory Robinson, the program director for NASA's James Webb Space Telescope, was named to the Time 100, the magazine's annual list of the world's 100 most influential people and leaders. Robinson began his career at NASA in 1989 and joined the Webb team in 2018. In his current role, he oversees what will be the premier space observatory for the next decade. The Webb Telescope will explore every phase of 13.5 billion years of cosmic history to help us understand our place in the universe. The Cislunar Autonomous Positioning System Technology Operations and Navigation Experiment, or Capstone mission, is targeted for launch no earlier than June 6th. It is a collaboration between NASA and industry that will use a microwave oven-sized CubeSat to test a unique elliptical orbit around the Moon, formerly known as a near-rectilinear halo orbit. The mission will help reduce risk for future spacecraft, including Gateway, a Moon-orbiting outpost for NASA's Artemis program, by validating innovative navigation technologies and verifying the dynamics of this halo-shaped orbit. 
The NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts, or NIAC, program selected a new solar sail concept for development toward a demonstration mission. The solar sail, which uses a property of light called diffraction to make more efficient use of sunlight, could carry science to new destinations. For more information about NIAC and NASA's investments in space technology, visit nasa.gov slash spacetech. Our Ingenuity helicopter on Mars captured this black and white footage during its record-breaking 25th flight. The flight, which took place on April 18th, was also Ingenuity's longest and fastest flight to date. The rotorcraft traveled over 2,300 feet and reached a speed of 12 miles per hour. The latest episode of our NASA Science Live was all about the total lunar eclipse on the evening of May 15th overnight into May 16th. It featured NASA experts and live views of the eclipse from around the world. Meanwhile, our Lucy spacecraft captured the imagery of the eclipse seen in this time lapse when the traveling spacecraft was about 64 million miles from Earth. It shows Earth on the left and the Moon on the right, which can be seen disappearing into darkness as it passes through Earth's shadow. The Lucy spacecraft is on its way to study Jupiter's Trojan asteroids. NASA's Cold Atom Lab, the first-ever quantum physics facility aboard the International Space Station, has been used to shape atoms of gas cooled to nearly absolute zero or about minus 459 degrees Fahrenheit into extremely thin hollow spheres. This is similar to how liquids behave in microgravity and can't be duplicated on Earth. The accomplishment could lead to new kinds of experiments with a state of matter distinctly different from gases, liquids, solids, and plasmas called a Bose-Einstein condensate or BEC. In a BEC, scientists can observe the quantum properties of atoms at a scale visible to the naked eye. Our research mission to enable supersonic air travel over land has been renamed QUEST. The name, which includes an extra S to represent supersonic, replaces the mission's original name, the Low Boom Flight Demonstration. Through Quest, NASA plans to demonstrate that the X-59 research aircraft can fly faster than sound without generating the loud sonic booms supersonic aircraft typically produce. That's what's up this week at NASA. For more on these and other stories, follow us on the web at nasa.gov twan. Well, now let's hear from J. Scott Miller, Professor of Astronomy and Physics at Maysville Community and Technical College in Maysville, Kentucky. Scott here. 
We have now passed the unofficial start of summer since Memorial Day weekend is behind us. Ahead of us this month is the official first day of summer, at least in the Northern Hemisphere. Known as the summer solstice, the date is June 21st at 5.14 Eastern Time that morning. For those watching the sun rise or set, this represents the date when the sun rises and sets the farthest north along the eastern and western horizons, respectively. That means the sun takes the longest amount of time to cross the sky, giving the longest amount of daylight of the year. And since the sun is most directly overhead, it can warm the earth better for a longer time. Weather response being as it is, we experience warmer weather on average over the next few months compared to the previous three. With a greater amount of daylight, that means less darkness. And it means it does not get dark until later in the evening. For those of us that like to view the stars and planets, this can be a bit of a downer. A longer wait until darkness coupled with a shorter time of observing. Still, there are things to see, so I wander out into the warmer evening skies to see what is out there. The most obvious target seen as darkness falls during the first full week of June is the moon. During this week, one might notice an eastward movement of the moon when compared to the stationary stars from night to night. This is due to the moon's orbital motion around the Earth. As it continues that eastward motion through the starry background, it will get fuller. Full moon is on June 14th. The full moon of June is sometimes called the strawberry moon because it signaled the time of the year to gather ripening fruit. It also coincides with the peak of the strawberry harvesting season. This moon has also been known as the rose moon and the honey moon. This is also the first of three supermoons for 2022. The moon will be near its closest approach to the earth and may look slightly larger and brighter than usual. How noticeable will that be? Unless you have some sort of measuring tool, likely you won't notice. Slightly is the operative word here, though it makes for interesting storytelling on the news from time to time. As darkness comes on, some patterns I have mentioned in previous broadcasts in the last few months begin to appear. Leo the Lion has worked its way over to the southwestern sky. Its brightest star, Regulus, marks the heart of the lion. Marking the end of the handle of a sickle-shaped group of stars, it helps mark the front half of the lion, its head and chest. East of Regulus, a right triangle of stars marks the hindquarters of the lion. Above the head of Leo is the familiar Big Dipper. Four stars mark its bowl, three more form a crooked handle. The back two stars of the bowl can point to Regulus. Start with the star closest to the handle and travel southward through the second back star of the bowl. That line will pass near Regulus. The handle of the Big Dipper helps us find two more stars and two more constellations. Follow the curve in an arcing pattern to the star Arcturus in Boötes' Herdsman. One arcs to Arcturus. And continue that curve brings me to Spica, that is, speed to Spica, the brightest star in Virgo the Maiden. The three stars, Regulus, Arcturus, and Spica, form a bit of an isosceles triangle under the Big Dipper. Though these three do form a triangle, the triangle most noted in summer skies is called the Summer Triangle. It is made of three bright stars found in three different constellations. It begins to clear the eastern horizon by around 1030 or so, depending on the flatness of the horizon. Vega is the brightest of the three and will be highest up in the east. 
It is the brightest star in the small rectangle-shaped constellation known as Lyra the Harp. East of Vega is Deneb, which also has cleared the horizon by this time. It is the brightest star in Cygnus the Swan. A line of four stars running parallel to the horizon at this time of the year, extending south of Deneb, mark the body of the swan, with Deneb marking its tail. A pair of stars above and below that line are the outstretched wings. The third star is Altair in Aquila the Eagle. It rises last of the three and again will need a pretty flat horizon to initially find it at 10.30 at night. The stars that make up the eagle are a bit dim and may need a star map to be discovered. Of course, the best known alignment in the Big Dipper involves the front two stars in the bowl. This pair is collectively called the pointer stars and are used to point to the north star, Polaris. A line starting from the bottom star extended to the top and then further extended about five to six times the separation of those two will reach Polaris. Finding Polaris means finding the direction north and thus determining the directions of east, south, and west along the horizon. Polaris marks the end of the handle of the Little Dipper. In the early guise of June, the Little Dipper is actually balanced on the handle tip. Under dark skies, two more stars can be seen above Polaris finishing the handle, while four stars making a rectangle beyond the handle mark the bowl. The curve of the handle and the bowl extend in the general direction of the bowl of Big Dipper. Early morning risers may have a treat, weather permitting. It is in the morning skies where we find the planets hiding. If one is up around 5 in the morning, Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, and Venus can be seen in the pre-dawn skies. Recall I mentioned the earlier rise time and later setting times of the Sun during this month. Saturn will be highest found in the southeastern sky. Jupiter will be roughly in the east-southeastern sky with Mars a bit to its left. A line connecting those two could be used to get you in the general direction of Saturn. The moon may help find it as well, being south of Saturn on the 18th. Finally, closest to the horizon is Venus. Hugging the horizon even more is Mercury. Always tricky to find because it doesn't appear against dark skies, having Venus nearby helps a bit. The moon may also help, being above Venus on the 26th and Mercury the next morning, effectively rising when it is as the two become less and less visible in the coming of sunrise. So the evening skies of June are planetless as darkness comes, being plentiful in the pre-dawn skies. But there are more than a few constellations to hunt for. Each of these have their own stories to tell, stories that could be fun to recount while sitting outside under warm summer skies. Thank you, Scott. Now let's end the show with more cosmic music by Vangelis. May he rest in peace. You've been listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. 
This is Dave Robinson, signing out. See you next week.